hope in heaven. We thank you, Lord, for your glory here. We thank you, Lord, for your presence. And, Lord, I thank you for coming mightily upon this tonight and just speaking through me everything that needs to be said under a mighty anointing. I thank you for your Holy Spirit even now moving upon your people. And, Lord, as you speak through me, living seeds of truth sown in a good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. So we thank you for it. I thank you for the winds of your spirit carrying this where it's supposed to go. And it will accomplish that which you sent it for it to do. Lord, we submit this unto you. We resist the devil. We bind anything that would try to hinder this word in any way. We command it to go now in Jesus' name. We break your power. We cancel hell's assignments. And, Lord, I thank you for your mighty angels just clearing away any hindrance. And this will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it for it to do and not return void. For the Bible says that we bless you and we thank you for it now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, well, we're on part six of the historic revivals. In this particular sermon, I want to look at uh, the revival that happened in 1857 through 59. And, of course, it, the outworking of it for a few years later than that. But this would be considered historically as our third great awakening in America. So this is the third great awakening. And what I want to talk about here is a burden for souls, and I want to talk about the importance of prayer. Another aspect of this revival, historically, those that study history, uh, you'll know this uh, by a couple different names. One is, is that it was the praying revival, and another one is the Fulton Street revival because of where it was birthed. So this revival was incredible. And let me just open with the scripture, and then we'll go on through this. But Luke 19, verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That was Jesus' heart, isn't it? The Son of Man came to seek that which was lost. And so Jesus' heart is for souls. And we have to have, we have to be a praying church, but we always have to have the burden of God for souls. And that's something that Steve Hill really put in my life was a great burden for the lost. And I've never lost that. And so we always have ministries in the church here that reaches out to the lost, and we always will. But how many knows church has got, God said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. If the church isn't praying, then who's praying? Is the news media praying? Are the school systems praying? Is prayer going on with our politicians? God help us all. I mean, the thing is that if the church isn't praying, nobody's praying. And so for the purposes of God to go forth in the earth, there has to be prayer. And one of the aspects of prayer that I want to talk about tonight was a phrase that was coined back in through revival history called vicarious repentance. And this was seen in the life of Daniel. Now, Daniel was a very righteous man. We read in Scripture there's a few people that we don't see anything about them that was of any ill repute. I mean, Daniel, find fault in Daniel. Anybody can remember anything about him that was negative in the Scriptures? Nothing. There was nothing ever written about Daniel but positive things, okay? He had an excellent spirit. Yet when Daniel prayed, he knew this is so important, some of the things here. Daniel knew that through the prophet Jeremiah, he read the scroll, and he knew the 70 years were up. And so Daniel had the word of God to stand on. 
How many knows that we need to get the Word of God? Not just the Logos where you read the Bible and you see promises in the Word. That is very important. But there's also an aspect where we need to know what is God saying in a specific situation, and we need to hear from God. I remember reading about the life of David, and, and David, you know, something would happen, and, and he would ask the Lord, shall I go into this battle? And the Lord would say, go and be victorious, and then David would go. So David didn't move in pride and presumption. Now, Daniel here, um, he knew that the prophet Jeremiah had a legitimate word, and so Daniel had the word of God that the time had come for Israel to be released from captivity, go back home. So keep that in mind, and it says here in Daniel um, chapter 9, starting with verse 1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Asherus, a median, uh, of Median descent, um, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed the books, the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer, pleading with fasting, sackcloth and ashes, and I prayed to the Lord my God. Now, Daniel could have said, well, the prophecy said this, so it'll just happen. That's what a lot of people do. They think, well, the prophecy said this, so it'll just happen. Daniel knew better than that. He knew that when you get the word of God, you pray it in. And let me give you another example of that in Scripture. Elijah told um, Ahab, remember, he said the drought for three years that's been here and it hasn't rained, he said, you better go back from where you came because I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. That's the word of the Lord. So what did Elijah do? He went and prayed until the cloud the size of a man's hand showed up. He had the word, but he knew he better pray it in. And I'm going to tell you, there is a warfare. The devil may not be able to completely stop some things, but if he can, he'll delay it. And he'll hinder it if he can. And a lot of that is, is by, are we going to have faith? And are we going to pray things in? And so Daniel prayed, and he prayed and fasted. And we know the story for 21 days. But let me just show you a couple things in here. It says, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. So he entered God's gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So Daniel humbled himself with prayer and fasting. But he entered with thanksgiving and praise. And look at what he did here in verse 5. We, everybody say we. Daniel actually wasn't a part of, these, of the sins of Jerusalem. Daniel was not burning incense to other gods. Daniel was not bowing down and to Baal or, or kneeling before some Asherah pole or something. Daniel was righteous, but he knew that he was representing the nation before God. And so he said, Father, you are the great one, merciful. I enter in with thanksgiving. You have been so gracious. And now we, as your people, have sinned before you. And so he vicariously prayed on behalf of the nation of Israel and said, we have done wrong. We have acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your prophets who spoke in your name to our king's leaders and fathers. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. And so he humbled himself and he prayed, Father, forgive us. We have sinned. 
And then he goes on to say, and the sins of our fathers. And so as he confessed the sins of the nation and the sins of the fathers, generational sins, God began to move. And I'm not going to read all this, but Daniel chapter 9 is worthy of a deep study by intercessors. But Daniel, um, the Bible says if you read the rest of the story, that the Gabriel, the angel, showed up, and Gabriel told him, said, on the first day that you prayed, you were heard, but I was delayed and hindered for 21 days. And thank God that Daniel didn't give up, and he kept praying and fasting. That's the thing. Sometimes things delay, but it's just simply spiritual warfare and the resistance of the enemy. God's still going to do it if people won't give up and will press in by faith. And Daniel stayed in faith, and he kept praying and fasting those 21 days, a partial fast. Gabriel shows up and said, I was hindered. I was delayed in the heavens by principalities. The prince of Persia delayed me, but Michael was sent and got him off me so that I could be released to you. And Gabriel brought Daniel tremendous revelation. And I believe also that set things in motion. I believe scripture bears it out. As Daniel prayed, it set things in motion for Cyrus to allow Ezra to go back and lay the foundations and Nehemiah to return and build up the walls. And it set things in motion for the people of God to be released out of captivity back and see things restored. But none of that would have happened um, without, I, I believe it would have happened ultimately. So let me say it a different way. It could have been hindered. It could have been delayed. It could have been a lot more difficult if people, righteous people, weren't praying. I believe ultimately it still would have happened because it was God's will, but it could have been a lot worse, a lot more difficult. God needs his people praying, and when we truly pray, it will restrain the enemy. Just like Daniel, it will bring breakthroughs in spiritual warfare in the heavens. So the revival of 1857 through 59... It was just like any other time of history that we've read about. This revival produced an international wave of repentance. This was a time, though, of great prosperity in America. How many knows, like today, where there's prosperity? I know we're in inflation. I know things are difficult. But if you look at the big picture of history, there's still a lot of prosperity in our day. And it produced greed and vices in 1857. Gambling and drunkenness became rampant. And for the first time, I'll hear this because this was interesting. For the first time in our Judeo-Christian culture, the occult entered our nation. And I know a lot of people don't know this, but some of our presidents, uh, in particular Abraham Lincoln's wife, but there were some others, got involved in the occult. I've wondered myself if that didn't open the door for uh, Abraham Lincoln to be assassinated because of his wife's involvement in things like astrology and seances in the White House. It could have very well opened a door for premature death in the spirit realm. But for the first time in our Judeo-Christian heritage, the occult began to come in in a way I know that there was Salem witch trials and all of that, and people were really against, like they were against witchcraft. But for the first time in our nation here, some of those that were uh, wealthy, 
people, people of prestige, it became kind of fashionable to look into astrology and to hold seances. It became popular. It was kind of the cool thing for people of means to do that. So that began to creep in, and the hunger for the supernatural turned some people toward these things. There was also a very playboy mentality of free love that was spreading as sexual immorality was on the rise. Also, in the business world, bribes and illegal business practices increased while the oppressive system of slavery was still legal in our nation. And as other times, atheism, agnosticism, and just apathy and indifference toward God had gained a foothold. Edwin Orr, who is a great historian of revival, if you want to read some really good books on revival and you're studious, Edwin Orr, O-R-R. Edwin Orr is probably one of the prolific writers. But anyway, he wrote in his book, The Fervent Prayer, that the fourfold decline in society was social, moral, political, and spiritual. So it seemed like every realm of society was not doing well. And what I mean by that is, yes, there was financial prosperity, but people were in vices. They were um, gambling. There was drunkenness, sleeping around, and society was backsliding big time. So we had had the first and second great awakening, but now, obviously, it was waning in society. So at a dark time, how many of you guys notice a pattern as I've been going through these historical revivals that every time revival came, this seems to be the description? And how many see today that we're looking at America, the landscape, and we're seeing that we're at an all-time low spiritually, just like every other time of revival? We're seeing in our, in our culture that people are getting out of church and away from God and all these other things are creeping in. But let that be an encouragement to you and I that this is the very time in history that God has always shown up with great power and turned the tide, and he did it himself. He did it in such a way that he got the glory. So the seeds of revival were sown through a man by the name of Jeremiah Lampier, He began a prayer meeting in New York. Everybody say prayer meeting. That right there was the key. He was a businessman. He was born again under the ministry of Charles Finney in 1842. So he was born under a fiery revival preacher. He was born again in that atmosphere. And let me tell you something. Don't don't take what I'm saying lightly. There's something about people that have been touched by the fires of revival that they're different. Jeremiah Lampier had been touched by revival. How many knows that when you're really deeply touched by revival, you're kind of ruined in some ways because you'll never be content with dead, dry religion or church as usual in the rest of your life again? How many knows that's true? And how many of you would say in your own personal life that you've been ruined by the presence of God and you'd probably never truly be happy in a dead church again? Well, Jeremiah Lampier was that way, and he saw he was born again under Charles Finney, and he saw the fires of revival. Something was in him that burned for God, and he was so burdened for revival. He saw how society was backsliding. He saw these things coming in, and Lampier walked the streets handing out pamphlets promoting a noonday prayer meeting 
at a Dutch church on the corner of Fulton Street in downtown New York. Man, it was from this little, let me just stop here and say, I don't think this is in my notes, but this little prayer meeting, this little bitty thing that people would have looked at and thought, oh, what's the big, this little prayer meeting was like striking a match that ended up going around the world. He could have never planned that if his life depended on But don't ever despise the days of small beginnings. And don't ever think because the Lord delays. Remember how Jesus delayed in the life of Lazarus, but the reason why was because Lazarus was going to go down in history and in the Word of God as being the miracle that launched Jesus to a whole other dimension. Jesus had already seen healings and such, but now Jesus' ministry had raised the dead, you see. So don't ever think that um, just because something is delayed. But anyway, so on Fulton Street, in his first prayer meeting, it appeared that no one was going to show. You remember the story of Edward Miller and all that? Remember that? It seemed like nobody was going to show. Then around 12.30, about six men came in, and the next week there was 20. By the first week of October, they decided to meet daily instead of weekly. This sparked a move of God in prayer that no one could have expected. Within six months, over 10,000 businessmen were meeting daily in various places to pray for revival. Oh, my goodness, think about that. That was God breathing on that. And, and it says here that history records that God heard their cry, and over the next two years, over a million people in America were born again and added to the churches in various denominations. This move of God was already happening some in Canada, and, and around 100,000 were born again in Ireland, 100,000 in Wales, 300,000 in Scotland, and around 500,000 in England. This revival was not marked by radical manifestations. So the common manifestation of this revival was people would come under the Holy Spirit's conviction and they would just tremble. And they would begin to weep and tears would go down their cheeks and that was basically the manifestation was just a trembling under the power of God, stand there or maybe fall on their knees trembling. But that was really the only manifestation. And Edwin Orr wrote about this. I was reading his book, and he was saying, I think that that's why this revival hasn't gotten as much press as other revivals, because the manifestations weren't so radical, you know? In Azusa Street, would you see all these incredible miracles like healings and, and fire over the building and, and the Shekinah glory and all that? And you, you hear about all these amazing things like at Cambridge, but here in this revival... This revival didn't have great radical manifestations physically, but the move of the Holy Spirit was incredible. I mean, the yielding of this harvest was unbelievable. I mean, the second great awakening swept our nation, went around the world, and, and, and there was a lot of people saved for sure. But I mean, look at the numbers here. There, there were so many, a couple million people at least that we know of that were directly impacted. So this revival, the revival of prayer, ended up producing great tears, repentance, and a great harvest. And great ministries rose up out of this revival like D.L. Moody, who was an incredible evangelist in this time. 
he got saved and God began to mightily use him. He was a great preacher and there was great crowds that would come and he was kind of like, if you will, the Billy Graham of this time. And Ira Sankey, Ira was, was a great psalmist. He was a great singer, worship leader. And he actually would lead the worship at D.L. Moody's meetings and prepare people's hearts. And there was such an anointing on him. Also, great ministries like William Booth's Salvation Army. And let me just stop here for a moment because many of you are only familiar with Salvation Army today. What Williams Booth's vision was, he was the one that wrote that song, Oh God, a burning, cleansing flame, send the... And he was talking about we need another Pentecost. William Booth was a fire-baptized, radical Pentecostal man of God. And during this time of the 1800s, late 1800s, he began this ministry that came up out of this revival here. And what they would do is, is they would dress up in like army fatigues because it got people's attention. And they would go down the streets and they'd have a band. I mean, people banging on the drums, playing the trombone, the tuba, whatever. And you know what they were doing? They were getting people's attention to get the crowds there and they would preach the gospel. And that's what it was about. And this revival, it was interesting as I was reading about this revival, this revival produced a burden in people to see certain cha- excuse me, changes in our society. For example, there was a real move out of this revival to begin to feed the poor. And that's where Salvation Army also began to really be useful because they began to feed the poor. And there was also a move in this revival to really begin to go against slavery. You see? So this was an incredible move of God that had a profound effect even on the culture Also, Hudson Taylor's powerful ministry to China was birthed in this revival. So you can look up some of these great men of God like D.L. Moody and um, uh, William Booth, and you can look up Hudson Taylor, but their ministries came out of the fires of revival of this time. Now, something I thought was really interesting was in, in their second Great Awakening and this third Great Awakening both, Edwin Orr wrote about this. He said that the Holy Spirit went down south and began to fall on our southern colonies and fell in particular very strongly on the blacks. And this is why that's really significant. Because those that know history, what happened in Africa was there was intertribal warfare and the losing tribes were sold into slavery. So they would be shipped off and sent all over the world. This was not an American thing alone. This was something all over the world, okay? And the blacks could have very easily in America had seen the white oppressors, if you will. They could have seen them as being Christians and that they believed in the God of the Bible. They believed in the Bible and they could have turned their back on God altogether and maybe gone back to some historical roots uh, of spirituality that, that they had back in Africa of Obeah, which is witchcraft and folklore-type magic and voodoo, they could have turned back to that. Y'all hearing me? It would have been easy for them to do, I think. And not only that, but you kind of see that in Haiti, don't you? So what Edwin Orr was writing about was so interesting to me. He said because of the Second Great Awakening and this Third Great Awakening, 
the Holy Spirit fell so hard on the blacks that instead of them turning to other things like that, they begin to get saved in, in great numbers and have black churches. And I'm going to tell you, this was the seedbed for some of the holiness, the powerful, fiery uh, black preachers. And let me tell you, even to this day, and you know it's true, there's a lot of black folk that'll tell you that they got some fire-baptized grandma that prayed them into the faith. You know what? That goes back to these revivals. Their roots go back to this historic move of God where God fell upon those precious black people and saved so many of them. As this revival swept um, through our society, Satan had a counterattack. This was the time that the devil raised up a man by the name of Karl Marx. Isn't that interesting? He was disillusioned with God. He was disillusioned with Christianity. And he hated God. He hated uh, Christians. He hated the Bible. He did everything he could to try to discredit those things and with that type of spirit, if you will, he wrote his communist manifesto. And this was like the devil's counter move against this revival. Did anybody, I'm sure this is news to you. Did you know that's where Karl Marx came from was Satan's counter move against our third great awakening in America? But this revival swept through our nation so powerfully. And I, I want to read one of, one, this is one of my favorite stories. So in this revival, just like every revival so far, maybe I've done not a good job in this area because I focus a lot on what God did in America, but every revival that I've mentioned so far has been global. John Wesley and them saw revival in England, okay? Yes, they came over here, but John Wesley and them saw revival. This was a global move in the first Great Awakening it was a global move in the second, and it was a global move in the third. And so I want to share with Ulster, Ulster, Ireland. This was so amazing. This is probably some of my favorite stories of revival actually come out of Ulster. So let me read this. There was, it was 1857, and there was a Reverend J.H. Moore who exhorted young men. Now, just look this way. This isn't in your notes. I gave you like a condensed thing. This is totally different what I'm reading. But J.H. Moore exhorted the young men in his Bible class, can't you do something more for God? Couldn't you gather maybe six of your careless neighbors and spend one hour with them reading and searching the word, if nothing else? Well, in response to that, James McQuilkin began to get a real burden for that. James McQuilkin had heard about how God was pouring out his spirit in America and Canada, and he wanted God to move there in Ireland. And so James McQuilkin heard this challenge from Reverend Moore, and he got together with Jeremiah Manili, Robert Carlisle, John Wallace. There was four of these men, and they began weekly prayer meetings in an old schoolhouse near Kells. And they, were, they would meet every Friday night from September 1857 through the long, cold winter. And as they read and meditated on the scriptures, their hearts began to burn within them with an unquenchable fire from heaven, which ended up, before God was done, setting all of Ulster ablaze with the fires of revival. 
Edwin Orr wrote about this revival. His writings are probably the best about the 1857-59 revival. But Edwin Orr wrote of these humble beginnings in, 18, in the 1859, year of 1859, rather. He said, this revival, which originated in a prayer meeting with just four young men. Everybody say four young men. That's it. How many have seen the pattern so far that it's almost always been a small number of people in prayer? Every time. And once again here, maybe it would blow up like uh, Jeremiah Lampier started with, what, six men, and it ended up blowing up in six months to 10,000. But here, four guys in prayer in an old abandoned schoolhouse near Kells. Um, Edwin Orr said that this had a greater impact spiritually on Ireland than anything else known since the days of St. Patrick. Wow. There was such a conviction of sin. This was happening in America too, but here in Ulster, there would be stories like this. He said that there would be a big, tough farmer that would be in town. He was getting supplies, and there would be maybe something going on spiritually. There would be people praying or worshiping or whatever, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit would come upon this big old rough, tough farmer guy, and he would just begin to shake under the power, tears going down his cheeks. He'd collapse on his knees and begin to ask God for mercy, things like that. It was just the Holy Spirit falling on the people. It wasn't something that man could have done. This was the common story thousands of times over throughout America, Ireland, around the world, but probably one of my favorite stories is the school in Coleraine. This was in Ulster, Ireland, okay? In Coleraine, in Antrim County, at a local school, this was just a boys' school, okay? A school teacher seeing one young boy clearly under the conviction of sin. How many want to see this in our schools? All right. This godly teacher saw one of his pupils out there under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So this teacher advised him, son, why don't you go home and call upon the Lord in private? So he sent him home with an older boy who had found peace with God the day before. After these two boys had traveled, uh, traveled in prayer for some time, the young boy was blessed. They, had, they were going home, and they saw a house that was abandoned. They stopped there to pray, and as they really prayed, the young boy that was under conviction was gloriously saved, and he knew that God had saved him. He was so excited. His face was just beaming. And so he goes back with his friend, back to the teacher, and he said, oh, sir, I'm so happy. So he came back to school. I would have thought maybe I would have just went on home, but that's okay. But anyway, he went back to school to finish his studies that day. But thank God he didn't because here's what happened. Strange words came out of his mouth here. He said, oh, sir, I'm so happy I have the Lord Jesus in my heart now. These were strange words in cold times, but natural words in the times of revival. But as the attention of the whole class now was arrested because these two boys came back, and now the whole class saw this young boy's face seeming to just beam with joy, saying, I'm, I'm saved, I'm so happy, sir. As he was given his testimony, one boy after another silently slipped out of the classroom because the Holy Spirit was moving on them. After a while, the school teacher looked out to see the boys 
out on the playground on their knees, each one of them in earnest prayer. This was just a spontaneous thing God did. He turned to the two boys that had just been saved, and he asked him, do you think that you can go pray with these? They did so, kneeling down with one another, one, one after the other, and they began to implore the Lord to forgive their sins for the sake of him who had borne them on the cross. Silent grief soon turned into bitter cries. As these cries, deep repentance, groans, deep cries of repentance were heard, the sounds carried over to the girls' school. And pretty soon, the girls fell under conviction and began to also go out to the playground with the same results. They're weeping and getting saved. God didn't stop there. The cries of the boys and girls at school reached even passerbys in the adjoining streets, and the conviction of sin came on them. And they fell on their knees in repentance, pleading for mercy. So pretty soon, this was, um, it was in God's control, but it seemed to be out of man's control. So the school started sending for pastors to come help us. The school teachers said, go get the preachers. We need help. So the preachers came, pastors and men of prayer were sought. They spent the rest of the day counseling and praying with these mourners. The sweetest of all toils that this earth witnesses when men labor and intercede for those who are brokenhearted by the sight of their sins, dinner was forgotten, tea was forgotten, and it was not until 11 o'clock that night that the premises were freed from these unexpected guests. Revival had come to Coleraine, fell in the school system. An open-air meeting later was held in the marketplace to hear testimonies of those who had been born again. Masses of people began to come from all around. It became clear that the multitude could not hear the voices of the speakers on the platform, so it was suggested that the people would separate into different groups on that, so different ministers could preach. This almost sounds like Cane Ridge. You couldn't hear because there were so many people, so different preachers. But one of the ministers testified, never saw this before in any audience, the same searching, the earnest, the riveted look upon the face of the people that were looking at me. Um, just in this holy hush. He said, I remember while I was speaking, asking myself, how is this? People were gripped with the fear of God, the conviction of the Holy Ghost. Isn't that awesome? So Ulster, Ireland was the birthplace where God began to really pour out his spirit, but the Holy Ghost swept through Ireland, yielding a great harvest of souls. This third great awakening in America brought a great sweeping change to our society. Morality was transformed as many were repenting. If God can find a few people of prayer that will preach the truth and live righteous, he literally can transform nations. This prayer revival impacted millions of lives around the world. Isn't that awesome? So I was reading about this, and I thought, what an amazing move of God. And Edwin Orr said, in some ways, he said, this might have been one of the most pure moves of God that he's studied because the Holy Spirit would just blow in, and people were just swept under the power of God, just begin to tremble and weep and deeply repent and be born again. And it was so awesome what God did. But, you know, that reminds me of what God did in the Welsh revival, doesn't it? You guys remember reading about Wells? That, this is a very similar type of thing. 
God moves so powerfully. And what I wanted to, to close with, as I talked about this revival, you know, this revival, just like every other revival, was something that was just a sovereign move of God. And let, let me try to clarify something here. I totally agree with Charles Finney in his belief. I believe he's right. Uh, Charles Finney and I share a lot of similar ideas and doctrines, etc. But Charles Finney, I think, might have confused a little bit the power evangelism with revival. And let me try to explain what I mean. When revival comes, it is not something that is planned by man. The greatest example of that would be in Hebrides, because in the Hebridean revival, the Holy Spirit just fell, and people were gripped with the fear of God. And so they had asked, now, if the Holy Spirit fell when Duncan Campbell came, okay, but Duncan Campbell didn't have anything to do with that revival. That revival happened because people prayed. He was just there to lead people to Jesus. But the revival was independent of him. Do you understand what I'm saying? But what God will do is God will bring many times powerful evangelists to come in to the revival so that the souls can be saved. But the revival is independent of that. And that's why you're seeing here, and as every other revival, I mean, like at Cane Ridge, the Holy Spirit just fell. I mean, Barton Stone was thinking, what do I do with all these people? They, could, they can't hear me if my life depended on... There was preachers scattered all over the place doing their best. But the Holy Spirit just swept in and knocked everybody down. And all these people are getting up saved, and then they would begin to witness, and people would fall out and get saved. That's actually the move of the Holy Spirit, what we would say is a sovereign move, an act of God. But Charles Finney believed that if you pray, he said, if you pray and you believe God, it's like sowing seed in the ground, and then you expect a harvest. Well, that's true. But his, his mindset, I think, was formulated because he was an evangelist, and he was praying in the harvest. Does that make sense? But these moves of God were not something that man initiated. They were not something that man controlled, and they were bigger than any man. I mean, these were just sovereign acts of God sweeping in the harvest. But just like, for example, at the Brownsville Revival, the Holy Spirit fell, but God had brought in an evangelist there to help facilitate the bringing in of the harvest. So you had a revival, but you also had Steve Hill coming in as an evangelist to work in that revival to see the harvest. But see, Steve was not the revival. You understand what I'm saying? So the revival is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit moving on the hearts of men, causing people to be softened, causing people to be open to the gospel, causing people to feel convicted of their sin and to repent. No man can come but the Father draw him, and the way the Father draws is by the Holy Ghost. But in every revival, it seems that God will raise up evangelists, though, that will work in the revival to help bring in the harvest. So is this making sense? I want people to understand there's a difference between evangelism and the revival. It's not the same thing. But they obviously work together incredibly well, and that's God's heart is for souls. So what I got as I was studying this revival, what I got out of this was two things. Number one, that we have to pray. Pray. 
But number two, that the burden for souls that we must have. Prayer is what causes the Holy Spirit to move upon the lost and draw them unto salvation because prayer is what releases, the answers to heartfelt prayer is what releases the Holy Spirit to move. Prayer will cause labors to be raised up. That's why Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that God will raise up labors. Labors are raised up when we pray. Prayer will cause divine appointments to happen. It's why it's so important that you pray beforehand because God will connect you with divine appointments. Many people right now beneath our feet in hell could have been saved, but the truth was that nobody was really praying for them. Did y'all hear what I said? There are many in hell right now that could have been saved, but nobody was really truly praying for them. And no one reached out to them. Now understand, sometimes people reject the gospel. But if we will earnestly pray into the harvest field, God has a harvest. God will respond. He is faithful. We have to keep praying and keep pressing in like Daniel because even though it may seem to delay, God knows what he's doing. There's a perfect timing in all of this. God knows that every harvest field is ripened at a different time. God has a sovereign move, but God himself only knows all the details that have to come together for that move to be ready to be poured out and everything in place. God knows his timing is perfect. Our responsibility is to keep praying and believing for God to pour out his spirit. And I believe if we will do that, God will move in an awesome way in the fullness of time. But there is a fullness of time. How many understand that from the scriptures? The Bible says about Jesus, in the fullness of time he came. There was a timing. In the fullness of time, as we keep praying, keep praying, keep pressing in, there will come a fullness of time when God says, now it's time to pour out my spirit and yield the harvest. Our responsibility is to stay in prayer and make sure that we're ready when the Holy Spirit comes in that way. I remember this was, this was shared during the 90s revivals. It was a cassette tape that came out of Oklahoma. A man and his brother, the man's name was Sam, but they had a powerful revival going on there in Tulsa. And I remember talking to Sam. He was a really nice guy, but they were seeing a real move of God, and, and they had been touched so powerfully at Brownsville, and he had made back then cassette tapes. All you guys are old enough to remember cassettes, okay? I don't got any of these young guys here that's like, what is that, right? So this was back in the day of cassettes. And they had made uh, this cassette that went all over. It's called Revival Fire. And I was able to get from Sam a copy on CD, which I ended up digitizing and help, helping to facilitate get that out. It's even on our website. But anyway, I've given you guys a copy. You've heard it. But he made that, and he had 45 minutes on the front and the back, and a lot of really powerful revival clips. And it's interesting because one of the little clips in there, it's not very long, but as you listen to it, you'll recognize, as, as he said up here in this pulpit, his distinguished voice. You remember Sergio Scataglini when he came here, right? But he was saying, 
that God had given him such a burden for revival, and he found himself praying, Lord, if you don't send revival, take me home. And he said, I wonder why I felt that way, because he said, I had my wife and three kids. The ministry wasn't so bad. Why am I feeling this way? But he said, I didn't realize God was giving me a burden for revival. You remember hearing that on there? That was Sergio's category. But one of those that had gone to um, the Hebridean revival to study it out, which the Hebridean revival happened in 1949 and 50, 51, somewhere in there. But they'd gone back and they were studying out the revival. And one of the guys said that as they researched it and talked to some of the people that were alive during that time, he said that they didn't have a wineskin that was ready to really facilitate the revival. So eventually, after a couple of years, it was lost. But one of the things about the revival that, that stuck out to me in the Hebridean revival was that if you remember the stories, I've shared it so much, there were such deep prayers that was going on in that barn and barbers, deep repentance. And just like the prophet Daniel, there was a pastor and, and, and around seven, maybe a dozen men that were meeting in this barn praying. And the Holy Spirit moved upon one of the young men, the book of Psalms, and said, who will ascend the hill of God? He that has clean hands of pure heart. And he began to say, Lord, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And he began to really pray, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them and brought conviction. But Duncan Campbell, you ought to look him up on YouTube. Look up Duncan Campbell talking about the Hebridean revival. And he's got that strong Gaelic accent. But he shared, he shared this. He said there was a power that broke loose in that barn in Barvis where that pastor and those handful of men were praying. He said that before God was done, it shook the whole island of Lewis. For two years, they could not hardly keep up with the people that were getting saved. A sovereign move of God. Duncan Campbell came in as an evangelist, but he was having a hard time keeping up with the Holy Ghost just going from place to place, sweeping in the harvest. But it was prayer that birthed every move of God. So this is how I want to close this. You guys know this. I've gone through all these revivals so far. I've got several more I'm going to cover. Every revival, society had gotten to a low point, and every revival somebody was praying every time. And it was prayer that birthed the revival. And so I felt as we close out tonight, I'm just going to pray, but I want us to go ahead and close out recordings. But Lord, I just thank you for hearing and answering the prayers over tonight. I thank you for this sermon. I thank you, Lord, for letting this move upon your people, Lord, that there will be such a hunger for revival. Like Sergio Scataglini, you said, my heart was so burning for revival, I felt in my spirit, Lord, if you're not going to send revival, just take me home. I can't stand it. I've got to see a move of God. There's something in us that's got to be hungry for God to come. A desperate cry, Lord, put that in us. And Lord, give us the grace to be faithful as prayer warriors to see a move of God birth in our generation. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Just let me know when, when the recordings are stopped.